Welcome to the War in the Pandemic, a special COVID calls episode that is part of a longer series of the program that started yesterday, which is a deep dive into exploring and reflecting on the first two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of epidemic disease and public health at the College of Charleston, and I'll be guest hosting a series of episodes of COVID calls for this special program, and you can catch most of them with the regular host and founder, Scott Knowles. Scott began COVID Calls, which is a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse array of disaster experts, on March 16th, 2020, and has been doing um, nearly five-day-a-week uh, COVID Calls program since. And we're doing this marathon of episodes to mark the 500th episode of COVID Calls, which is such an incredible testament to this public history project and what is also the launching of the digital archive of COVID calls as a way to think through and remember and research the pandemic. For the record, this is episode number 485 to give you perspective of we're getting, we're getting closer. <clears throat> this is part two, this hour of a two-part episode that I'm hosting that is exploring the entanglement of the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Last hour, I spoke with Ukrainian health expert, Pavlo Kofunyuk and historian Dora Varga. On February 24th, 2022, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Koleba, tweeted that Vladimir Putin had, quote, launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Russian attacks began that Thursday after Putin approved in a televised address, quote, a special military operation in Ukraine, a war. Russian missiles began to attack cities and civilians all across Ukraine. Three weeks later, where we stand today, the war in Ukraine rages on. Somewhere between, and the numbers are hard to, to keep track of and follow and trust, somewhere between two and three million Ukrainians have fled the country, and millions of more have been displaced internally within that country, creating a tremendous humanitarian crisis, what is undoubtedly the largest European military conflict and crisis of this sort since World War II. Casualty statistics have been difficult to come by as well. The UN reported yesterday that more, more than 500 civilian Ukrainians have died, and U.S. military estimates are between 2,000 and 4,000 deaths in Ukrainian armed forces, um, also with 5,000 to 6,000 deaths of Russian soldiers. Pavlo, who's, who's in Kiev right now, um, just told me in the last hour that one of the things that's not being reported, I certainly haven't seen it being reported in, in, the, in, the, in the U.S. media or in some of the, the, the other Western media that I follow, that Russian soldiers are being treated in Ukrainian hospitals by Ukrainian doctors and nurses. Um, and in, that alone should give us some, some pause here as to the, the depth of the, of the entanglement of, of war and pandemic right now. The war in Ukraine began, of course, uh, in February, as the country was reeling from the most devastating period of the COVID-19 pandemic and a surge of cases from, from Omicron. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center reported on the day of the Russian invasion, when it began, that Ukraine had experienced a seven-day average of 27,000 cases, new cases of COVID per day. And, and that's a pretty dramatic um, number that I, that I keep coming back to when thinking about origins, origins and beginnings of, of the war, which we might put February 24th, we might go back to, to 2014, um, might think about this in, in a lot of ways that I want to talk with my guests with today about beginnings, but but one of those beginnings with on, on February 24th did correspond to one of the, the biggest periods of new COVID cases 
in the country. And that, that has to be part of this history and this conversation. Daily, we're hearing reports of Russians selling, shelling hospitals throughout Ukraine, targeting hospitals and civilians, um, which is another topic today that I want to talk about, of medical supplies dwindling, of Ukrainian refugees who are undoubtedly carrying COVID-19, um, certainly not their fault, to neighboring countries. We have a, a refugee crisis, a humanitarian crisis, uh, an ongoing crisis in, 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 this, in this country. The organization Human Rights Watch has reported this morning that in the port city of Mariupol, which has um, come under um, a lot of attention in the last um, seven days in particular, in the last 24 hours, um, a city that is surrounded right now by Russian troops, which is being um, hit with Russian missiles um, constantly. And that was also the city that was the last in Europe to experience a significant cholera outbreak in 2011. Um, and, and I think what is resoundingly clear to me, even though I, I don't have the ways to talk about it, and that's why I'm bringing on these amazing uh, guests, is we just won't be able to tell the story of the pandemic without telling the story of the war in Ukraine. These are, these are inexorably tied now. And so my guests today are, are here to help us talk about this, to make sense of it, and to, to start processing it. So my first guest joining me today on COVID calls is Dr. Trish Starks, who's a historian of uh, Russian and former Soviet medicine and public health, um, who's a professor of history at the University of Arkansas. She's written extensively on Soviet hygienic reforms in the 1920s in her 2008 book, The Body Soviet, Hygiene Propaganda in the Revolutionary State. She's written about smoking in the Soviet Union in the 2018 book, Smoking Under the Czars, and her newly published Cigarettes and Soviets, Tobacco in the USSR. And she's currently working on a project on gendered anxieties of the body and vigor in Russian context. Um, we'll talk about all those things uh, here on COVID calls today. My second guest today is uh, Dr. Paula Michaels, who's an associate professor of history at Monash University. She's an expert on the history of medicine and gender in Russia, Eastern Europe, and Eurasia. Dr. Michaels is a leading expert in the field of trauma studies, something that I want to talk so much about today in the program. I don't. I think it's probably the best lens with which to try to understand or start to understand what's happening in Ukraine. Um, Dr. Michaels has published numerous articles about childbirth, about maternity care, and trauma in Eastern European history. Her 2014 book, Lamaze, and International History, was the winner of the 2015 Francis Richardson Keller Sierra Prize from the Western Association of Women Historians. And in 2021, uh, publishing all books is hard, but publishing books in a pandemic deserves extra care and, and, and uh, attention. Uh, Gender and Trauma Since 1900 um, with Christina uh, Twomey. Um, and uh, she's currently working on a book project, Soviet Medical Internationalism in the Global Cold War, which I don't know how you write that book without right, talking about COVID now, or at least as some kind of coda. Um, so I'm just so thrilled to have you both in the program and to share this intellectual space with you. So welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jacob. So Trish, let's start with you. You've written extensively about disease, public health, and the Russian and Soviet context from the 1920s um, on to very recent um, thinking about public health in this area of the world. What about this historical work? And I know it's hard for, for us as historians to do this, to try to process in real time and try to apply in real time. 
the, 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 the studies that we do. Um, what is your historical work? What have you found useful in trying to process what's happening um, right now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Is, 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 what about this story? Is an is a Eastern European story? Is a Russian story? Is a Ukrainian story? Um, what about this makes it a, a local story as much as it is a global story of, of, of this era, of, of this period in the world? Uh, thank you, Jacob. Thank, I, the immediate thought for me, uh, coming from a historical perspective, is to come from the, the side of the Russians and look at how I see health as a lens to understand Putin's aggression and also to understand the course of the war as it's moving forward. Um, I wrote a, a, a bit of a thread on Twitter talking about the masculine tenor and the kind of the, the aggressive, aggressive machismo of Putin as kind of an outgrowth of this almost a fearful aggression, a, a, an attempt to hide the weakness of Russian males that has been building for over a century, a weakness that is demographic in terms of just raw numbers of males that have been whittled down through war, through famine, through war again, um, through um, the collapse of the health system, and also kind of the, the ways that hopelessness bred a decline in male health in Russia. And so if we look just at numbers, the the number of Soviet citizens, of Soviet males, declined massively over the 20th century. We have a loss of 15 to 20 million during World War I, Civil War, and the Revolutionary Period. We have a loss of another 8 million during the Stalinist policies of the 30s. And then, of course, World War II hits us with a 28 million loss. Uh, and all of these numbers are, are approximate, which is a frightening concept to have approximate numbers in millions. But that is the, the nature of this kind of Soviet experience. And so we have a real decline just in numbers of males because many of these deaths are males. So that we have an average number of males of in the mid 70s by the 1950s for every 100 women. Mm-hmm. And this has been hidden through all sorts of agendas that are really um, health programs focused on women, on control of women's reproduction, on control of access to abortion, on attempts to raise the birth rate. But I think behind this is a real fear about the power of men just in terms of numbers. But then you add in that these men have been increasingly unhealthy um, from the 1960s with average age of Russian males peaking um, in the, the 1960s or, or the late 1950s, early 1960s in the low 70s, and then starting to subtly decline year after year until we reach the, the mid 1990s. And they're down to um, in 1994, the average age of Russian male death is 57.6 years. Wow. It's just a boom. It just falls out of the bottom. Hmm. And so when you see this kind of massive decline, the, the machismo, the, the, um, the, the kind of thriving health that Putin has always projected, this ferocious male energy, it, you start to see it as more of a, a, um, a veil over this weakness as a way of trying to, it, it, to reflect back so that no one sees how, how 
how weak the man behind the curtain is. Hmm. And so that's one way that I, I sit there and look at Putin in this aggressive action. And the other thing is to think about how the policy demographers looked at that. So Murray Fishback, who's kind of this foundational figure of Russian and Soviet demographic analysis, speculated that as we have this kind of bottom dropout of Russian male health, one of the ways that Russian aggression might take in further action is to become increasingly technologically um, focused rather than boots on the ground. And I think that's a shift that we're seeing in the Ukrainian war is that as they can't field soldiers, we're seeing it's a, you know, there are all sorts of things that are going on. There's, there's problems of outfitting soldiers and problems of supplying soldiers and all sorts of things that are part of the corruption of the system. But there's also this real fear of just numbers and, and what are we going to do as we lose numbers? Because Russia is one of the few places that we're seeing a, a decline in population. There were about 149 million Russians at 1991, and we're predicting by 2050 that that's going to be around 105 million. And so it's a, a, a state that is in decline in numbers. And as you see that decline, does that mean we're going to see increasing kind of a, 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 a increasing technology used rather than manpower. And so between those two factors, you've got a real problem of what's the off-ramp for Russia in this war. Yeah, I'm really, um, thank you so much for that 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 way to kick us off. Um, I'm really struck by, by that. So I'll start with your second point um, and a reflection on it, which is that I think, I think your characterization really helps to explain um, why at the very outset of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Putin just basically stood up in front of the world and just said, like, any parts of Ukraine that I deem as ethnically Russian are just going to be Russian territory now. That, that you know, under under your analysis, that that just reeks of, like, jingoism and, like, this, like, real insecurity about um, a particular kind of version of Russian masculinity, but, too, like, a real population demographic kind of concern. Um, and that that's totally fascinating. So thank you for that. The the other point that that I wanted to follow up with you on, um, and then I'll bring Paula in, is how much does the the how much do everyday Russians do you think know about all this? Is this, this population level uncertainty? Because one of the, what what seems really clear, I think, even to a casual observer right now about what's happening in Russia, is that the state is is profiting like huge amounts of propaganda out right now. And the official Russian narrative is something that is completely divorced from the reality of what Russian troops are doing in Ukraine and what Russian missiles are doing to Ukrainian people. I do think there has been a grand emphasis on improving health um, and something that's been part of the narrative. Part of the discussion is making men more sober, stronger, healthier. It's been part of the discussion since the late 1960s. But a lot of the actual numbers were disguised during the Soviet period and have been, since the 1990s and the real bottom dropped out, there's been a narrative of progress that Putin has really talked about, the progress of his public health programs since 2008, how they've had really great reductions in, I'm trying to think, what was it, 
They claimed in 2018 that alcohol use had declined by 80% and that tobacco use had declined by over 20% in just five years of programs. And so there Mm -hmm. has been this narrative that they've been pushing out about, yeah, the 90s were bad, but we're back and we're healthier and stronger and more sober and Mm -hmm. we're not smoking. And COVID just, just knocked that one. Um, and I think it, Paula, you, you can correct me, but my understanding has been that COVID has been really downplayed. They haven't been talking about this. They haven't been talking about these these numbers and that same facade of strength of see we've been making progress has been just trumpeted everywhere. Yeah, let's bring you in, Paula. What do you what do you what do you think about that? Well, I, I think um, you know I agree with everything that Trisha said, but I would add that. Um, it's interesting to think about the dissonance between that messaging from the state and people's lived experience, because people know that they've gotten COVID, that they're suffering long COVID, that their relatives have died, that there's low uptake of the vaccine. So even as there's this story of Russia's back and this burying the story of Russia's true experience with COVID, there is, you know, people just have to open their eyes and look around themselves to see um, what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I wonder if we can like follow this, this train a little bit, because I mean, what I, what I, what I expect is that like, when there is that dissonance between what the official state media is saying, and then what the lived experience is saying in the middle of, of course, like the collision of a pandemic crisis and a war, what you have is a bunch of trauma, right. Of, of individual people. And I wonder if like what you're thinking about that um, with, with so much work that you've done on trauma and particularly gender and medicine and trauma, um, how, is, how is a trauma framework helpful for understanding what's happening right now, either in Russia or in Ukraine or in any of these, you know, conflicting spaces? And, I, and, and what I'm thinking about here is like seeing images about um, in the media about hospitals being being bombed, right? Like de- deliberately. So at one level, you know, early, you know, now like my historian brain is struggling to keep up in real time because I'm like early in the war, which was three weeks ago. So it's still in real time. But early in that period, um, you know, Putin seemed to be arguing that this was to save Russians in Ukraine. It was to liberate Russians in Ukraine. And um, the targets were military targets. They were Air, air spaces and, and other Ukrainian uh, defense centers. And now like we're, we're here in mid-March and that just doesn't seem to be the case. There's like deliberate bombing of, of spaces like hospitals um, and maternity hospitals. And I wonder like, there's just, I mean, y- you both know um, how important and how um, specific this kind of attack when, when medicine and gender and public health can can overlap with trauma and and I'm thinking about like what the hell is happening in Ukraine and and how can we think about this with trauma of like childbirth and parenting and medical supplies and humanitarian aid um how how are how are you using all of this expertise that you have to try to process this it ain't easy I'll tell you that uh but I will say that there's a couple of things I would emphasize the first is that um, trauma from historian's perspective is not a trans-historical 
or transcultural phenomenon. So while the medical establishment is very keen to um, codify uh, what we today call post-traumatic stress disorder in a way that sort of solidifies it as something that exists outside of time and space, historians ground our understanding of trauma in the specific uh, the specifics of uh, of place and time. And so the events that are happening, uh, these dreadful events in Ukraine, need to be understood in that unique historical constellation. And of course, COVID is overlaid onto, mm-hmm. uh, onto that. Um, and the other thing I would say is that gender plays a critical role kind of inflecting the experience of trauma. So mu- much of the resources uh, for research onto trauma have gone into studying the experiences of men. Um, and it's the reasons for that are obvious because we the 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 our understanding of trauma has grown out of studying the experiences of combat veterans and most combat veterans, in fact, almost all are men, and so therefore there's been a lot of attention paid to um, trauma as experienced by men, but there's been far less attention to what we can call ordinary violence that precipitates trauma in non-combatant experiences. And so you gave the example of childbirth, and this is an emerging field of research. Um, You know, women who have experiences in childbirth that leave them with PTSD. And, um, you know, there's also something called, um, uh, uh, it just flew out of my head, but a kind of uh, uh, traumatic experiences in childhood that are, uh, you know, not the kind of life-threatening experiences that usually characterize what precipitates PTSD, but yield similar symptoms in adulthood. Um, so those are the, some examples of the kind of ordinary violence of everyday life that can, um, can, can precipitate uh, traumatic experiences. And here you have a situation in which you have really unbridled violence being unleashed on a civilian population deliberately. And of course, at the same time, life goes on. Pregnant women still have to give birth. You know, people will still get COVID. Um, people still have cancer. Uh, so all of those ordinary life experiences have to then proceed under this um, shadow, um, the the long, dark, and violent shadow of war. And with the um, deliberate destruction of the healthcare infrastructure, that makes all of those things much more difficult to do. <clears throat> the other, <clears throat> excuse me, the other part of it in terms of gender is that the way in which not only does has gender impacted what gets studied in the field of trauma studies, but also our lived experiences. You know, not only are women the ones who give birth, but women are in general the carers in families. They're the ones who are responsible for securing food for example, which is made much more difficult in conditions of war. They're responsible 
in general for caring for the sick, whether it's their parents or their children. They are the carers in the family. On the other side of the equation, men in general are um, seen as the, the protectors of the family. They have the responsibility for keeping the family whole, for keeping their, their wife and children safe. You know, here I'm kind of just, um, you know, this is like archetypes, right? Yeah. Not necessarily what's happening inside every family. And the war confronts those notions of gender roles. So the man at the front who has been dragooned into serving in the military, but is not a soldier, but I don't know, a nerdy historian uh, who's now toting a gun, um, who feels terror at the existential threat that he's facing and terror at the fate of his family and his nation um, is coming face to face up against um, deeply um, felt, ideas about what constitutes manhood. And similarly, the woman who, who fails to keep her child safe, you know, the woman who fails to take care of her aging parents because of conditions well beyond her ability to control. Nonetheless, however rational she might understand those um, circumstances aren't her fault, um, is really coming up against confronting her failure as a woman, which is really just so core to her sense of self. Paula, I, I'm fascinated by your work with trauma. I just wanted to step in and ask a question about trauma as a weaponized piece of war. Uh, in particular, I keep thinking of how Zelensky has been just masterful in his use of social media and how we are seeing so many images of traumatized Ukrainian women. And I'm not sure we're seeing the same of males, but I just wanted to ask you about kind of comparing the, the way that the Russians are using trauma or weaponizing trauma and how the Ukrainians are and what you see going on there. Yeah, I think that's a really great observation. Because all these, and, and you're right, Zelensky has been absolutely masterful uh, in terms of his, you know, public presentation of himself and actually presenting a very different kind of manhood than Putin, um, which is something we could explore a little more deeply. Um, but, you know, these images of women and children as victims, and of course, it's true, right? This is not a fabrication, but it's it's not the images that are projected on Russian television about what's happening. And it's very different than showing, for example, a bombed out building, which is, you know, just a thing, a depersonalized image. So it's making manifest for viewers the human impact and trying to, to, to touch something in people's hearts, of course.
As a reminder, you're joining, uh, you're joining us on, on COVID calls in a special lead up to our 500th episode um, with my guests, Chris St- Starks and Paula Michaels. Um, yeah, I want to follow up with that too, that this lead, because it's, it's so interesting and important. And one of the things that strikes me is in my previous, in the conversation last hour um, with Ukraine's former vice minister of health, Pablo, um, he, he laid this like really interesting chronology out about like, from, from 2014 to 2019 of major restructuring of Ukraine's, Ukraine's healthcare system, of a move towards a one-payer system, a more European system for health provision. And then the pandemic hit and Ukrainians very distrustful of government, low uptick of vaccination, um, hospitals doing quite well, he said. You know, like we hospitals in Ukraine never got to the crisis levels that they got in other parts of, of the world. Um, and then the war begins in February and there's massive trust in government. And you see Zelensky as this really mobilizing uh, political figure, not only in the country, but around the world. I mean, Zelensky, you know, has almost become like Zelensky qua Zelensky of this mimetic figure. Right. And, and, and I wonder, like, trying to think about that. In, in terms of how the war and the pandemic fold on to each other, where is the Zelensky been of COVID? I, you know, it, one of the things that people have talked about is uh, Putin's absolute fear of COVID and how that's kind of part of these big tables and that, you know, Zelensky really played on that fear and kind of called him out in his masculinity of, you know, I won't bite. You can come sit right next to me. And then immediately, you know, Putin turns around and has a photo op with a bevy of stewardesses to show not only is he not fearful, you know, he's, you know, he's surrounded by beautiful women. It was such a, an almost textbook, I I can't even a stereotypical, there we go, a, a stereotypical answer to being called out as not a man to then have this. And COVID is right there as part of the context of it. I see Paula Ma- and nodding. I'm going to stop for a second. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is this interesting, almost like back and forth conversation that they're having with these visuals of, you know, the man's man bunkered down with his fellow soldiers in time of war is one trope. And then there's, you know, the Casanova with, you know, surrounded by, as you put it, this bevy of, of Araflot beauties. Um, and it, it really are, it's kind of two different sides of very stereotypical ideas about masculinity, one being kind of, you know, John Wayne and the other being maybe more, I don't know, James Bond or something. Um, but I, the other thing I want to add is that you do have these ways in which Putin, you, you see him kind of overcompensating because he is aging and, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of psychohistory. Uh, and I am also not a fan of great man theories of history. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm going to indulge in saying this. When you listen to his speech that he gave on the eve of the invasion, the man did not look robust. He did not project strength. He, and he kept inhaling very deeply as if he was kind of gasping for breath a little bit. And he, um, 
So you had this rhetoric that was very aggressive, but you didn't have that as a physical manifestation, you know, the, the Putin wrestling with a bear kind of, you know, image judo guy. Uh, that's not how he looked. And um, on the other hand, you know, Zelensky, in some ways, he's not a, he's not a burly guy. You know, he's not very tall. Uh, he's a he's an actor, yes, but he's also a lawyer. Not exactly professions that are seen as you know stereotypically like hyper masculine compared to KGB agent. But it is you know in the in the nineteen sixties, not just in the West but also in the Soviet Union, we had you know a kind of unraveling of there being a, a single mode of being a man. And this sort of multiplicity of male identities became more permissible. And Zelensky sits at a different end than Putin does within the spectrum of sort of classic heterosexual male image. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, you know, you know, I wonder, Trish, what what you have to say about that, too, and how this is this is part of this, like, very interesting historical, like, unfolding of a dialogue that's happened with Ukraine being like this, this important cog of being like the last democratized space in, in Europe and Zelensky maybe representing something about um, masculinity in, in, in democratic nations, if we can characterize it in that probably unfair way. And then, and then Putin representing a very different version that is, that is a historical version because I mean, from, as both of you know, like Putin, in almost everything he does geopolitically seems to invoke his own vision of, of history, right. And everything that he does. And Paul is right. There are all these different versions of masculinity, but I like how you bring in democracy to this or a kind of a, um, a, a diverse state and that he has this kind of a solidified view of masculinity that is taking them backward on so many things in terms of, uh, you know, they, they've added back in um, the ability to beat your wife has been legalized in Russia, that, that they have anti-LGBTQ laws, as opposed to this very open Ukrainian state where Zelensky, when he gives speeches to the people, makes sure that he uses both masculine and feminine endings, that he is calling to a citizenry that is more diverse and more open, and that that is exactly the group that is also just fleeing as quickly as possible because they're worried about the crackdown that will come when Russia comes into these areas and they go after feminists, activists, LGBTQ, etc. And so there is a real worldview, a real worldview foundation to these kind of manifestations of masculinity on the na- on the national stage, on the propagandistic stage that it, there is also an entire view of what society should be like that's coming through from both of these figures. Mm-hmm. Can I add to that, that there's mm-hmm. also an ethnic dimension to it as well, not just gender, and that, you know, Zelensky himself is Jewish, but mm-hmm. also, you know, we keep hearing about elected officials who have, you know, what look like um, Tatar names. So they're most likely 
um, Muslim, and Ukraine is, like Russia, a multi-ethnic state, a multi-confessional uh, state. But the image coming out of Russia is very uniformly white, orthodox, um, and a complete erasure of the multi-ethnic character of Russia, even as Chechen forces are in the vanguard of the assault on Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. And, I, and I'm thinking about the imagery, too, in, 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 in how Zelensky is, has manifested the, the public persona um, of, of the nation of Ukraine. And like he also has been clear to, to, to not just be like himself bunkered down with forces in fatigues and, and holding you know, weapons, but also like with his family. And, and I wonder if there is like a familial, if we can like broaden this discussion to like what does family mean, too? And, and there's a way in which I feel like, at least from, and this is just like totally anecdotal, but I wonder what the two of you think of like Zelensky is like put himself and what his vision of Ukraine is as a, as a diverse family, but an intimate familial unit. And then Putin, like we don't see like the images, like you both said, are like him surrounded by probably anonymous women. Um, and, and family only means eth white ethnic Orthodox Russians. Um, so I would, you know, in, of course, Putin is divorced <clears throat> and there are rumors about, you know, a secret wife and a secret family. And that is a really stark contrast with the, you know, photo op ready Zelensky family of, you know, the two children and the beautiful wife. Uh, he's also modeling heterosexual normativity there as well, which undercuts any challenges to his masculinity. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. Um, and that maybe, you know, Putin may not feel the need to cloak uh, himself with those sorts of norms when, of course, he was previously married and, and, and that living that sort of bachelor playboy image uh, is another kind of manifestation of of manhood. It also depends who are you appealing to. So that image of the playboy is very seductive to men, whereas the family man is going to be something very appealing to Ukraine's women, but also to um, you know foreign foreign audiences that are look look at that and they see. Oh, stability, you know, level-headedness, even keel, responsible, uh, which is not the image that Putin projects. The the other thing I would add is is uh, is the word of brittleness springs to mind when you think about Putin mm -hmm. and his man his articulation of what masculinity is. I keep thinking of the um, the po the posters and the calendars of Putin. I. And, and yes, there is a certain uh, fangirling about Zelensky that's going on that has a similar feel. But you remember, Paula, probably the, the song, I Want a Man Like Putin. It's, it's an earworm. No one should have to listen to it. And I'm sorry, I just put it in your head again. But it really is. There really is this weird kind of beefcake cult of him. And I know it's been made fun of and memefied in the West, but it is not a joking matter hmm. in Russia. It is 
he is the strong one and there's a there's a, a kind of glorification of that that is not not satirical it is it is very it is profoundly serious and i i think the playfulness that we've seen with zelensky in terms of masculine roles um that that video of him dressed in leather and dancing in high heels um it's just not something that we would ever see on the russian side yeah I wonder, um, as a way to, um, you know, not go in new directions, but to ask a new kind of question um, to follow follow this thread, is is thinking about what what happens next, and and I wonder. Um, obviously, that's an unfair question, but I think it's still one that's worth asking right now. And and I wonder if we can sort of think through, based on what we've talked about particularly about gender and how that inflects both politics and, and health politics. Um, what's What might be what we should expect to see going forward, either with the Russian response? And Trish, you alluded to this at the very outset. You said like Putin's all in and he's all in for these very particular insecurity reasons. So pulling out of Ukraine would be disastrous for his image and if the image is 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 not the only thing maybe at stake but maybe one of the most important things for him that's at stake here then 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 i think like that needs to be at the front of our center of analysis um but two about thinking about public health and and what might be the future of of public health both with covid and 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 you know paula you mentioned this earlier of of other allied health problems that don't go away during a pandemic they just they just get forgotten about for for a temporary temporarily and you know zelensky and and putin we've sort of characterized as having two very different approaches here for for navigating this this war but i wonder if, how it's going to translate too into navigating the ongoing pandemic um well, I, I don't. I, I don't think that there's not an off ramp. I don't. I don't think that escalation is our only option. I do think that there has to be a win for him in some way. But that win is now increasingly got to be balanced out against prolonged embarrassment of a loss. And I think we're coming up against that. And so, how does he save face? And I think there were uh, last I left Twitter at like two hours ago before some meetings, there was some forward movement on. If Ukraine says they'll be neutral, is that just enough for him to say that he had a win and that we can see some kind of, you know, movement of a lack of hostilities or a movement towards peace? And so I do think there are ways that he can save face if he gets just enough of a win. And I think increasingly that's balanced against how much weakness are we going to see? Because we're seeing increasing weakness and that's also not an option. And so, and and to go into full-on bombing of civilians is is being interpreted as weakness in a way that I don't think um, is is what he wants to see either. And again, I I'm, I'm with Paul. I don't want to put this all into great man politics, but I do think that unfortunately he has a lot more sway on this than in other areas. Paul. Yeah, I do find my whole worldview is deeply unsettled by the fact that I keep coming back to how much does hinge on a single man. 
even though my entire career is built on writing a story that undercuts that narrative. Um, so I have to, I have some deep soul searching ahead of me on that front. But I, you know, I agree with Trish um, that there is an off ramp here. Each day that passes is already a loss for Putin right? That this didn't go, it's like 72 hours, overthrow the Ukrainian government, occupy the whole country, boom. That would have been a win. Everything short of that is a loss. But he needs to find, and he he knows that. Um, so he needs to find a way to save face. And if that means Finlandization of Ukraine, then um, I think that's something that you, if, assuming that there's territorial integrity maintained for Ukraine, I think that is something that, that the Ukrainians can live with. Um, but in terms of the health outcomes and the ways this ties back to that, um, I, I think uh, one of the issues here is that there, the health consequences are long-term. And this is going to fade from the headlines before those health consequences have played out. And so, you know, and I would also like to note, as many, many people have said, there have been wars through the pandemic in other places, okay. right? Um, it's just, this has thrust itself into our attention at this moment. Uh, but it's been true, you know, in Syria, Afghanistan, elsewhere. And um, the, when peace comes, to Ukraine, there is going to be a tremendous amount of infrastructural rebuilding in the healthcare system that's going to have to happen. Sure. Moreover, Ukraine, as, as was already noted, had pretty poor vaccine uptake. And, you know, maybe this new faith in the federal government there is going to translate into greater trust on vaccination. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia too has had pretty poor performance in terms of vaccine uptake, and I doubt that this war is is really increasing trust in the judgment of the government. And and I'd add, I mean, we're of course and and most certainly focused on Ukraine and how this is, uh, you know, killing Ukrainian civilians, killing Ukrainian fighting forces, and destroying infrastructure there. But the effect of sanctions is going to be severe for Russian health as well. Um, mm -hmm. Again, it, everybody is talking about this as a return to the 1990s or even the worst eras of, areas of the 1990s. And I've been really inspired by uh, the works on the idea of deaths of despair in the United States and to how do we understand the decline in white male health in the United States in the early 2000s, in the early aughts, and, and that interpreting Russian health and Russian male health through deaths of despair, we're going to see an uptick in alcohol use, an uptick in tobacco use, an uptick in accidents, suicides, et cetera. I, I, again, I'm not a predictor. I, we, we're historians. We like them dead. They, they don't respond to our critiques in that way. They don't, they don't fight back. But looking at what we saw in the 90s and looking at the economic dislocation that's hitting right now, I can't imagine that we're not going to see upticks in abuse of substance and with that a decline in male health. 
and female health too, but especially male health. And usually what comes with those uh, is an uptick in domestic violence too, right? Which disproportionately falls on women and children. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I used to sort of wrap us up here, um, I keep coming back to this thought too, which is that le leading up to the, the COVID-19 pandemic, if you listen to folks in, in global health that worked in global health, one of the things that was like hot button issue, everybody's talking about how do we figure it out? The next, the next generational problem is, you know, global health equity and, and how to, how to focus on global health equity. And, and the vast majority of those conversations were about the global South. And, and I think the, the war in Ukraine has, I hope one of the consequences of it for global health will be a deep reassessment of what global health equity actually looks like. Because here we're talking about a sovereign democratic country, which is going to have a long tail of disaster that is infrastructure, that is political, that is health. Um, and, and it's not just going to be in Ukraine. And that's, Trish, why I love what you said at the end here, which is like, there's going to be some health crises in Russia, too, that that aren't the fault of everyday Russians who are part of a regime that they may be against, but can't speak out against for fear of their own lives or their families' lives. And, you know, I wonder like what, what international response, if any, there's going to be to that too, because so much of global health has been this, you know, quite frankly, in a kind of dismal view of my own, a kind of, you know, a, a post-colonial kind of global north trying to save the, the global north and like that's not what this is going to be in ukraine i'm sorry to tell you um and it, it, we're going to need some different kind of frameworks with which to even understand it so um i just want to end by thanking you both so much there's so much expertise on this call um from the both of you and your your insight and, and bringing to bear something that is so hard for historians to do but i you know one of the things that i've, I've been so um, comforted in seeing during, you know, being on COVID calls and, and hosting in, 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 in the capacity that I have and joining with Scott is like just hearing experts like the both of you weigh in on the reality that we're facing today. And, and that kind of public facing work is, is so important. And so I just, you know, thank you both so much for doing that work and sharing this intellectual space and, and keep on keeping on. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is been fascinating and it's great to hear from you paula yes yeah, same here trish really enjoyed your insights i have uh, a next episode coming up in uh eight minutes of covid calls uh and then we will uh resume um with scott Knowles. so please keep in touch <laughs>